in a, uh, more than as a lecture. So feel free to interrupt me. Um, if, you, if you're threatening to totally derail the conversation with your question or comments, I'll suppress you politely, and maybe we can come back to it at the end. Um, but, I, but I'm happy for this to be a dialogue. So Gwen asked me to come and talk in this early career session. Uh, my travel schedule is already full for the summer. I wasn't going to make any commitments. I've got a renewal, Howard Hughes renewal, coming up a year from now, and I've got to get papers out. Summer's one of the only times I have. But she said the magic word for me, which is she said it's early career, it's about students, it's about postdocs, it's about young faculty, and um, for people at my career stage, it's actually well known if you really want to get someone to come and give a seminar at a university, have the students invite them because <laughs> people, are, people are suckers for that. Um, because we care, I mean, you know, about students and your concerns. And I think particularly this topic that Gwen asked me to talk about, um, you know, which is about being, um, trying to be a faithful Christian in the secular academy and how difficult that can be at times and the challenges that, that it, it comes with. And I, obviously, since I've been doing it for 30 or 35 years, have some strategies that I've taken, some um, some sort of things that are effective, some things I've found not very effective over the years. And I'm just here basically to share them with you and some of the thinking I've done about how to try to communicate faith and overcome some of the stereotypes and overcome some of the barriers uh, within the Secular Academy. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit about myself at the beginning. I grew up in North Florida, which is South Georgia for all practical purposes, and you can probably hear a Southern accent in my voice. Um, I was an undergraduate of small liberal arts college down there where I majored in physics, actually, uh, but I moved, switched to biology, to neuroscience when I went to graduate school, and I went from the small liberal arts college, Stetson University, which most of you have never heard of, to Caltech, which is, of course, one of the citadels of American science. And it was a huge jump, um, and I was too naive to know how big the jump was because these people at Stetson had nourished me and given me so, so much confidence that I could do things. And that's the value of a liberal arts education, of course, and something that I, when I went to graduate school, all I wanted to do was get a PhD and go back and teach in a liberal arts college, kind of like, you know, this one here, actually. Um, but you get um, sort of seduced by certain cultures, and um, I got seduced by the research culture at Caltech, found out I was pretty good at it, wasn't sure whether I could succeed at the highest levels or not, had a lot of self-doubt about whether I could, but I decided to go ahead and do a postdoc, um, stay in the research game for a while longer, uh, because, you know, if I could always go and teach someplace afterwards if I wanted to after doing a postdoc, but if I bailed out of the research track, I was afraid I might have more difficulty getting back in, so I did postdoc. I did the assistant professorship, wasn't sure whether I could succeed in it or not, but decided I would try it. And, you know, here I am 20, 25 years later, and it's been a good long run. I've had a lot of luck, been fortunate to work with a lot of good students and a lot of good postdocs. Um, and, you know, it's been my life now. I'm 56 years old and, uh, you know, closer to the end of my life than to the beginning of my life. And um, But it's been good. And uh, for all of these years, I've tried to, I've always been a member of a church somewhere. I've been active in my churches, tried to raise my kids in the church. Um, uh, and it's always been a very important part of my life and kind of trying to blend the science and the religion and um, how do you try to communicate that without uh, succumbing to stereotypes in the academy has been a bit of a challenge. 
Uh, just so you know, I was the son and the grandson of Southern Baptist ministers. Um, my father was the first in his family to complete college, so um, both of my parents actually wound up with, later in life with master's degrees. But I was raised, I would consider my parents as orthodox Christians, uh, conservative Christians, but not what I'd call crazy conservative. I used to hunt fossils with my father. He always had National Geographic around. He was interested in hominid, you know, uh, fossil finds from Africa and stuff. And I, I was I was very, very fortunate with my parents that they gave me the foundation of faith and they gave me the foundation of a stable family, but they never um, made any kind of... Um, uh, you know, roadblock between science and my Christian faith or anything like that. They were very open and encouraged me to do whatever I wanted to do and what I had the talent for, and I've always been very grateful for that. I don't stand here in front of you as a particular um, role model of victorious Christian living or anything like that. Uh, I know what suffering is about. Um, I've just, full disclosure, I've been through a divorce in the last two years that was very painful. Um, and so I found myself, you know, uh, in the muck and mire of everyday existence along with everyone else, um, looking for grace where I can find it and trying to give grace where I can. So, um, so enough about me. Um, one of the things about being a Christian in academics and trying to be uh, faithful is that you always get tough questions. And I'm sure that those of you who are in secular universities, and probably some of you who are not, are accustomed to trying to feel these kinds of tough questions. And these tough questions come in various forms. When, they, when people, your colleagues, your friends, find out that you're religious, that you're Christian, that you go to a church, uh, these questions tend to come. Um, and they come often enough and with sufficient intensity that it's very tempting sometimes to try to hide the fact that you're a Christian, you know, or that you go to church just because, not because you're ashamed of that particularly, just because you don't want to have to deal with a flack that comes along with it. Um, and I've actually found that, you know, one of the things that we can do to communicate, that I can do, to communicate, try to communicate faith effectively and to try to open the door to communicating faith is just to tell the truth about who I am. Somebody says, what would you do this weekend, Bill? And, you know, one of the things I should that I should say is, well, I went to church Sunday morning. You know, I did this on Saturday, Sunday morning I went to church, Sunday afternoon I did this. And people hear that church thing, and it comes back. And it doesn't require, I don't have to run around handing out pamphlets, you know, or anything like that to do uh, personal sharing of faith. Um, if I just tell the truth about my activities and I'm just normal with people and normal human relationships, it tends to come out. Now, the questions come. So there was, when I was a junior faculty member at Stony Brook uh, for four years, um, we developed a relationship with a young couple, couple of postdocs who uh, did some babysitting for us occasionally and uh, they loved kids and they didn't have any of their, their own at the time. Uh, but there was one night we had them over for dinner. We were getting ready to go out of town for three days and just wanted our young kids to get, get familiar with these people. And, you know, we had a little wine at dinner, and maybe Karen got a little carried away with herself or something. But, you know, the subject of religion or church or something came up, and Karen just blurted out, you know, in the middle of the living room with no preface or anything. Karen looked at me, and she said, Bill, how can a smart guy like you believe all that stuff? Okay. So there, there's a question, you know, how do you, re how do you respond to a question like that? How can a smart guy like you believe all that stuff? Um, there was a time uh, when a professional colleague of mine who I've been an acquaintance with 
I'm an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. We had been at a Howard Hughes meeting together. We were on a car coming back to Dulles Airport, and somehow he had heard of my religious involvement or faith or commitment or something. He started asking me questions about it. And he was very interested. He was very intent and very interested. He wasn't hostile like a lot of my colleagues sometimes can be. Some of my colleagues are hostile. Uh, but he was very intent. He was very, very, he really wanted to know how it worked and what it meant to me and what kind of Christian I was. And, uh, you know, he listened, he asked questions, we went back and forth a bit, and finally he just stopped and looked at me with a sort of peculiar expression on his face and said, I don't get it. You must use a different part of your brain when you do that. <laughs> and so I've tried to write some things and think about, as a neurobiologist, is it a different part of my brain that I use when I do that? And what does he do with that part of his brain? You know, because he's, he's got a part of a brain too. I was having lunch with a postdoc in my lab, and of course everybody in my lab knows about this stuff. And uh, you know, he engaged me in conversation over lunch one day, and uh, you know, was talking to you. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about this? Do you really believe this? Do you really believe the other? And um, you know, we were talking, and I was trying to give some kind of reasonable account of myself, and he just finally stopped and he looked at me, got that weird look on his face that I see not infrequently, and he said, but Bill, this is so different from your normal way of thinking. Because my postdocs accustomed to dealing with me in lab meetings, and we're reading some paper from the literature, and you know, I have high standards of proof before I want to accept something into the canon of what I believe to be true about the nervous system and about the brain. And he's accustomed to me being a bit of a hard ass. Um, and um, and then he hears me talking about this religious faith stuff, and he says, this is so different from your normal way of thinking. And he was amazed. Um, other reactions that I sometimes get, and this is one that really bugs me. Um, I ask, I, I'll always ask, you know, I ask some people, oh, do you go to church? Are you religious? Or, no, 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 I'm not religious. I'm, I'm a scientist. Okay? Have you ever heard that? I'm not religious. I'm a scientist. Um, or, you know, no, no, I'm not into all that irrational stuff. Have you heard that? So that's irrational stuff. Um, so this, this kind of thing particularly bugs me because it seems to put religious people and science-oriented people at opposite poles from each other and implies that they're, not, that they're mutually exclusive and that if you try to be both, somehow you know, there's, there's some cleavage in your brain and you do one with one part of your brain and one with another part of your brain and you must like, have some kind of split personality right, or split mind or something like that. And a lot of what I'm going to try to say today it addresses this kind of attitude because this is one that I think is particularly dangerous and it's one where I feel like I, I have some lines of inquiry and some lines of discussion with people that I've been able to develop that give me leverage, that get people to re-examine this, this, this whole assertion, this whole attitude that many people have, scientists have, highly educated scientists have, and they don't even realize how naive it is. Um, so this is, this is something before talking about, you know, Christ or, you know, the virgin birth or anything. I mean, all of that stuff is a non-starter if we can't get over this thing, this kind of hump to begin with. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that today and tell you some of the strategies that I've tried to use. Now, sometimes these things come up just in party situations. I mean, I had a visiting professor from University College London, a big guy, was giving our big departmental lecture 
And, you know, the lecture happens in the afternoon, and the faculty, this is our one time of year where the faculty really go out to a nice restaurant with this guest. And I don't know, some, some one of the faculty in the department must have told him, or he must have heard somehow or the other that I was religious. And we're sitting here, you know, with glasses of wine and all, and people are listening to conversation, my faculty colleagues, and he looks at me and he says, you know, I don't believe in any of that religion stuff. And I'm like, you know, where did this come from? I mean, we weren't talking about religion or anything, you know? And... Um, and you get sometimes things like this just come out. And I didn't want to be impolite to the guy. He's our distinguished guest, right? And I didn't. And, um, you know, so one strategy that I start trying to take with academics, because it's interesting to them, it tweaks them, is that if it's, if it's in an offhand situation like that, and it's awkward, and, you know, there's time for a one-liner that might lead to a conversation later, I mean, the thing that I try to say to people is my world makes more sense to me with my fate than without it. I look at the world with my fate, I look at the world without my fate, and it makes more sense to me with my fate. Now that, people, people, that, that intrigues people, okay? And it's a good place to start from if you can start with that line of reasoning. Um, so, so then I try to get into conversations with people later in private, you know, where you're not in some kind of spectacle competition with an audience around, because if there's an audience around, people get defensive, natural curiosity isn't there, you know, you've got a position staked out, I'm trying to argue my position look good, they're trying to argue their position and look good, and in general, I don't, I don't, I don't find that very conducive to openness and really making a difference. So I try to get more into one-on-one or very small group conversations where I know people are genuinely interested. And I try to break that down. Okay, what is it, what is it that seems not to make sense about religion to people, and why do I say that the world makes more sense to me with my faith than without it? So I try to kind of break this down into a couple of things. I, I try to distinguish between the results of science and um, methods of an inquiry or modes of thought in science. Now, those are two very different things. And I try to emphasize to people that, in general, the results of the science pose no necessary conflict with Christian faith. So things we know about the world with fair certainty uh, from scientific results, I don't think pose necessary conflict. In fact, I think many times they're remarkably consonant. So the Big Bang, of course, I mean, a religious person could hardly have written that better, right? I mean, the, what the Big Bang tells us is that our universe, everything we know about this universe, had a moment of creation. The universe did not exist from infinity, but it, it, it started at a very precise moment uh, about, what, what is it, 14 billion years ago, 15, 13 billion years ago. And before, there was nothing, and afterwards, there was something. And it doesn't even make sense to ask what happened before the Big Bang, because time itself began at the Big Bang. Um, our whole ways of marking time in existence built. And Robert Jastrow, who's not a Christian, wrote this little book a couple of decades ago now called God and the Astronomers. And, you know, he talks about how amazing this was. This Big Bang Theory was worked out and it was verified experimentally that, you know, physicists with all their ingenuity and, and uh, intellectual acumen, uh, you know, they climb the top of this peak and they get this answer about origins of the universe and they find a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. Um, so... This is incredibly consonant, I think, with the biblical doctrine of creation. And most of you know about anthropic principle, about how finely tuned this universe seems to be to, for humans to exist, that there are like you know, 20 universal constants. If they tweaked by even the slightest amount, uh, we wouldn't be here to be reflecting on the universe or to write about the universe. It would be expanding and collapsing. There wouldn't be time to, uh, for life to evolve. 
And if any of you don't know about this stuff, Francis Collins has you know, a nice little introduction to this in his book, The Language of God. Francis is a, a Christian. You guys know Francis, head of the Human Genome Project? Uh, yeah, and he was here. Like, he spoke at the meeting a while ago. The book is in the bookstore. Great. Good. It's a really good book. I mean, he, he came to Stanford. He came to Stanford to talk at a thing sponsored by InterVarsity and uh, Veritas this past March. I introduced him and moderated the question and answer session afterward. There were 2,000 people, it turned up. The auditorium only held 1,400. There were 600 in overflow. Um, so he's, you know, he attracts a lot of interest. Uh, he's very well-spoken, very humble guy. Evolution, um, I don't think that, you know, the evolution has been the biggest, the biggest flashpoint, of course, for many, many years. But I don't find, personally, inconsistencies between evolutionary theory, especially in its more recent incarnations, and the notion of creation. And, you know, I'd recommend reading Kenneth Miller's book, Finding Darwin's God. I don't know if Kenneth Miller has been here to talk or not, but this is an excellent book. Um, and then, you know, what I mean by recent, Simon Conway Morris, who is a paleontologist, world-class paleontologist from Cambridge University, has written this book, Life Solution, Inevitable Humans in a Lonely Universe. And, you know, the part about evolution that I think worries, uh, properly worries a lot of Christians, it was the old Stephen Jay Gould argument that if you rewound the clock, it's about contingency, you rewind the clock of evolution and go back to its original starting place and you let it run all over again and you get a very different world with very different creatures and, you know, there's no way that we could have been intended in some sense from the beginning of it all. And what Morris argues is very, very different look. And he, Morris is big into convergent evolution. He points out the fact that over and over again in the evolution of life, some, the same solution keeps being found. Wings evolved multiple times. Eyes evolved multiple times. Um, you know, if you live in the water, you're going to locomote in certain ways because there's only a certain number of solutions to live life optimally in the world that we have. And Morris thinks if you wound it all back and started it all over again, you'd take somewhat different paths to get there, but that some of these solutions are inevitable. And even Richard Dawkins in The Blind Watchmaker, if any of you guys have read that book, he has this amazing line in there where he says, once evolution got properly started, I think that the evolution of intelligence it was nearly inevitable. And I think Dawkins was having a religious moment right there, actually. Um, I, mean, I mean, it's like saying from the beginning, this was inevitable. We were in the origins of the universe just as an apple tree is in the seed of the apple. So I, you know, I talk to people about these results of science, these things we know with reasonable certainty, and I don't, I don't think there are, there, are, there are problems here. Okay? I just don't. Um, now, where problems do arise, I think, is that the modes of thought can be quite different in the two domains, science and religion. And this is where I experience and many perceive a genuine point of tension between science and religion. So this is what my postdoc said to me, right? But, Bill, this is so different from your normal way of thinking. Okay? So, of course, normal for him was me in lab, evening, lab meetings or, you know, discussing papers or scientific data or saying we've got to have these controls before we can publish this stuff, you know, whatever. So the modes of thoughts can be different. And I, you know, I think we're all aware of this, those of us who are scientists and who are also interested in faith. I mean, science is experiment-based, it's precise, it's objective, and ideally it's transferable across communities or countries. I can write some procedure, talk about some result I got in my laboratory, and if I publish it properly, describe the procedure properly, somebody I've never met 
you know, in India, in China, you know, France, wherever they are, they can take that paper, they can reproduce it, and they can get exactly the same result. I mean, there is something verifiable and transmittable about science, which is why it's such a valuable way to approach certain kinds of truth. Now, religion is more holistic. It has a greater dependence on intuition, and it requires a lot of commitment in the absence of proof that would be satisfactory in a scientific sense. Now, anybody who's had Science and Religion 101 knows that these two things, they are not absolute divisions. Science requires commitment in the absence of proof. Just to undertake a project that might go on for a year to five years, you have to have a certain amount of faith in what you're doing. And if you take somebody like Copernicus, you know, who, who pursued an idea uh, for decades under extreme persecution, I mean, that's a gut level of commitment. That's not objective. Um, you know, this is not a dispassionate uh, enterprise that we're involved in in science. And we know that intuition is present in science, right? I mean, you, you have ideas, you have intuitions about what's going to be true, turn out to be true about a natural system and what's not. And sometimes the greatest scientists are the ones with the best intuition. Any of you, any of you who know the Myers-Briggs personality test, you know, you know that the classic profile of the scientist is the NT, the intuitive thinker. So the intuition pay, plays bigger. So these are not, these are not, um, Mutually exclusive. There's some of the each of these and the other, but still, I think as a qualitative, sorry, a quantitative matter, it's clear that science is is um, plays pays much more attention to certain things, whereas religion pays much more attention to other things. And this is the point of tension. Okay, and when people say, oh, no, 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 I'm not religious. I'm a scientist," or "No, no, no, I don't, I don't deal with that irrational stuff," they tend to be putting this off in a special category, saying that saying that all of this stuff about these intuitions and, you know, this philosophy and this interpretation, large scale of life and, you know, dealing with stuff that you can't prove and that's just stories. Like, I, don't, I don't have anything to do with that. Okay? I don't, I don't, I'm a scientist. I deal with science. All right. Now, here's the problem. And this is what I try to get people to see. And this is a very, very difficult thing, actually. It's very simple, but it's very difficult for some people to see. And you have to have a lot of discussions to try to get people to see this. And this is very important. And the important thing is that I try to convince people of, and I've had, you, don't, you have no idea how many discussions I've had about this with colleagues or students or friends or whatever. The mode of decision-making that predominates in religious life is the normal mode of evaluation decision-making in the overall context of human experience. Okay, so we've got this kind of scientific mode of thought and the scientific way to approaching truth, and we've got this uh, more religious way to approaching thought and truth and reflection and making decisions. And my my real point to my postdoc to to everyone is that hey, you're in the same boat I am. You know, you don't know it yet because maybe you haven't thought about it quite in this way yet. But this kind of thinking that we experience in religion life is the normal mode of evaluation, and you're doing it yourself all the time, and you just don't know about it, okay? And the scientific mode, in contrast, is very peculiar. It's applicable to a rather narrow range of experience, and it's generally practiced by a rather small community of professionals. So if anything's esoteric and unusual in the private domain of, you know, a particular group of initiates, it's actually the scientific mode of doing things, scientific way of describing things. And here's my fundamental contention that I really try to press home time and time again. And this is the fundamental contention that the most important questions in life are not susceptible to solution by the scientific method. 
Okay? And this, this I just have to go over and over again. And in fact, just for hyperbole, I would argue that the importance of a question tends to be inversely proportional to the certainty with which it can be answered. So we can tell you the value of pi or the value of the universal gra gravitational constant to as many decimal points as you want to. And the issue is, you know, we can do that very precisely, but how important is it really? Well, what are the most important issues in our life? Well, how about this one? Is it better to live or to die? And you talk to a large audience of 100, 150 people, and that's going to be a live issue for somebody in that audience. Okay? Now, I would say this is an important question. But this question is not susceptible to solution by the scientific method. There's no experiment you can go into a laboratory and do and get an answer to this question. Okay? Now, we don't have to get this extreme, this existential. Here's one that, you know, lots and lots of people face all the time. Should I pursue a professional opportunity, a job, elsewhere in the country at the cost of uprooting my entire family, all of whom have their own independent lives? Kids are in schools. Somebody thinking about that right now? Um, kids are in schools and such. Should I do this? And, again, this is something that's not susceptible to solution by the scientific method, right? And I just talk to people. I talk to my postdoc. I talk to the people. And I say, you know, how are you going to make decisions about this? What kind of experiment are you going to do to get, to get answers to this? And, of course, the, the big thing in life, as we live it, we can't do controls. You know, you cannot take that job and see how life spills out there for you and your family, then run it back and take a different job and see how life spins out for you and your family, and then go back and do the best one. You know, you, you, we can't do controls. Our most important decisions that we're making all the time, and this is true for me, it's true for my postdoc, it's true for everybody in this room, everybody out of this room, the most important things, decisions, you have one shot at them, and you have to make those on guts and intuition. And, and you know, here's a classic example, right? And I, I find that I just have to try to keep making this point over and over again. And this is one, you know, that is common, especially for young people at this age group. Should I marry person X, you know, this particular person, whatever, you supply the name. Now, that's not susceptible to a scientific answer. We can't do experiments to find out. That doesn't mean we can't use our minds, right? We can think about these things all the time. And here are some of the data that we look for. We look for experience in the relationship. So, you know, to some extent, you're an empiricist and you acquire data. If you've had a relationship with that person, you've been acquiring data about how that relationship goes, how it works in periods of disagreement, how it works in periods of agreement. So, you know, we can gather data on these kinds of questions. You can look at your family background, look at the beloved's family background. You can try to make extrapolations into the future about where the models are going to conflict, where are you likely to have disagreements. Uh, we were talking about this kind of thing a little bit in the gender in science session today. So, you know, this is something we do in science. We try to identify trends and predict the future. You get advice. You get as much information as you can from mentors, counselors. So you try to access the common experience of other people. So, you know, to say that these problems are not answerable by the scientific method doesn't mean we don't think about it. We bring lots and lots of mental resources to bear, and we think really hard about it. But in the end, a faith commitment is required, and the stakes are very, very high. Okay? So in the end, you make a commitment to marry or to have children or to take a particular job, and you've done the best thinking you can, but in the end, you have to act there's a certain amount of faith that it's going to work out, 
and the stakes are high. And as someone who's been through a divorce, I can tell you those stakes are very high. It's not a trivial thing at all. So, you know, I, I just try to say, put simply, this is the human condition. It is life, and our most consequential decisions in life have little or nothing to do with science. And you can see the point I'm trying to make here, right? I'm trying to answer that question. I'm trying to address that, that facile, naive assertion Oh, no, 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 I don't believe in all that religious stuff, all that intuitive, philosophical stuff. You know, I'm a scientist, okay? Scientists have to deal with this kind of stuff just as much as anyone else does. It's true for everyone. It includes my postdocs and my faculty colleagues. Um, so if you can get this far in a discussion with people, at least we've had built some common ground. If we can get this far, we built some common ground. At least we can say now that we're all in the same boat, any kind of perceived divide between the religious and the scientists is actually, in my opinion, deeply incoherent. Okay? Because everybody's making important decisions based on life experience, based on intuitions, based on ultimately, I think, questions about what kind of universe we live in. So I try to make the point that this religious quest that I'm on and that a lot of people are on, including a lot of scientists, involves the same sort of reasoning as the marriage example. So there are sources of evidence available. You know, we're not doing this in a total vacuum. There, are, there is evidence available. So just as I have experience with a person in a courtship, uh, I have experience in a religious community. Does this thing work out in real life or doesn't it work in real life? Is it relevant to real life? Do I experience the kinds of things that people have said you experience or not? the testimony of other seekers throughout the ages. So just as I would consult mentors and counselors in a marriage situation, I consult tradition and I consult other people. Um, the critical reflections of fellows, uh, my friends and uh, pilgrims I meet along the way. But in the end, in the religious quest, the evidence is not compelling in a scientific sense, just as it's not in most of these other big decisions we make in life. Faith accompanied by commitment is essential and the risks are high. Okay, so this trying to establish this level of con continuity and trying to get my colleagues to see sometimes that we're all in the same boat together is one of the first things that I try to accomplish in a conversation. And I'm not talking about one sitting. Sometimes these things go on for months and months and months and months. Okay, so for everyone, I think the deepest question, the really key question is, in my opinion, now not everybody agrees with this. Some of my colleagues don't agree that this is the key question, but I think the key question is, what sort of universe do we live in? Is there an ultimate source of meaning and value to our universe? And if so, what is it? And science simply is not much help here. I'd say science is simply mute before this question. With all of our science today and everything we know, there's still that moment of beginning at the Big Bang that we don't know its origin, what it came for, you know, why is there, why is there something rather than nothing, that, that classic question. And we are no better off than our caveman ancestors in some sense, looking up at the stars and wondering why are we here? Is there any reason to this? Is there any meaning to this? For all of our sophistication, you know, so a lot has changed, but some very, very deep things have changed the same, and I don't think science is much help in answering this kind of question. My personal belief, and I do this confessionally with people. My personal belief is that we live in a holy universe, a universe in which each human life is valued and endowed with intrinsic dignity by a creator. Okay? So this is, this is where things frequently get difficult. 
A lot of times I have success in getting to this point, breaking down this artificial divide between science and religious inquiry and getting, helping people to realize that you know, we're all in the same boat. But making a positive leap like this, what I do believe, okay, well, what's the evidence for that? Okay? And if science is neutral, how would we ever know whether God exists and whether God really cares about us if God does exist? How would we ever know something like that? And that's where it gets harder. Um, and my personal point of view is I don't think we can unless God chooses to disclose him or herself to us. I don't think science gets us there. Um, and this, of course, is a uniquely Christian point of view about revelation or Judeo-Christian point of view about revelation. This is, you know, this is our doctrine that God chooses to disclose him, herself, to get to us in the person of Jesus. And um, this, then, is just a huge step for people. And at this point, you've got to deal with issues about the Bible and about how much you can trust the Bible and things like that. And I confess that I'm not that great at that kind of thing. But, um, you know, there are, there are pieces of Scripture that are very relevant to me here. Um, and I tell people, you know, I'm a Christian in part because I haven't found any better way. Okay? I've read Nietzsche. I've done history of philosophy. I've read utilitarian arguments for basis of ethics. Um, you know, I, I know the Federalist Papers a little bit and the precepts upon which this country was founded, but I haven't found a better way. And I feel a little bit like the disciples in the sixth chapter of John. Uh, this is a really long chapter of John. And Jesus had done some really hard teaching. Uh, it was about... It was about body and blood and, I don't know, related to communion somehow or the other. Exactly. Eat my body and drink my blood. And the disciples are like, whoa, you know, what is this deal? This guy's gone wacko on us all of a sudden. And it says, after this, many of his disciples drew back. So, you know, there were more disciples at once. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. He had, he had just gone off into la-la land where they couldn't go. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you also wish to go away? And, you know, what did Peter say? Uh, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. So I just get the chills every time I read that. Um, you, know, you know, Peter, bless his heart, said, I don't know any place else to go. You have the words of eternal life. You know, I've experienced things following you. I have seen things. I have felt things. I've come alive in particular ways. And you have the words of eternal life. And where else would I go? So, you know, at this point, I just am very confessional that, you know, sure, I was raised in a religious family. You know, some of my colleagues think, well, you know, you've already said your father was a minister. You were raised on this. How could you be otherwise? And I tell them, look, I know a lot of preacher's kids who went the opposite direction. You know, I'm a statistical anomaly. And, of course, it's nice to have people like Francis Collins be able to say, I was not raised in a religious family at all. I came to this as an adult. Certainly our early childhood experiences influence things for us, but they don't determine things. Okay? And, and at some point, anybody with two wits to rub together starts asking questions. Was, you know, this culture that I was raised in, you know, should I throw a lot of this overboard or should I keep it? And, you know, you go out and you look for answers. And in the end, you know, if you find words of eternal life elsewhere, you'll go for it. And you'll leave the religious stuff behind. But 
I haven't, I haven't found them elsewhere. And I like this. Uh, this is the next verse, the very next verse. And Peter said, um, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, what do you see about that? That's a really interesting sentence. What do you, what do you see about that? What comes first? Belief comes first. <laughs> Belief comes before knowledge. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? We have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. It's not like it was proven to me and I know and therefore I believe that you are the Holy One of God. Okay? Belief and experience come prior. And I actually think this is true of most human experience. Belief and experience precede knowledge. Do any of you read Frederick Buechner at all? Read his books? Uh, this is my favorite Christian writer. And, um, you know, if I could only do one thing for you this afternoon, introduce you to the Buechner that's spelled like this. Um, that would be a great thing. Uh, he's written a couple of really cool books. Sort of in introductory, Beekner is Wishful Thinking. Uh, highly recommend that book. And the more recent one is called Telling Secrets. And I highly recommend that book as well. Uh, but in Wishful Thinking, Beekner says, uh, you know, talk, talks about this like a friend. Uh, if somebody asks me to prove that my friend is my friend, um, and he says, when I'm with my friend, I don't need any proof. And if I needed proof, the person wouldn't be my friend. Um, and he's getting, at a, he's getting at something like this, that belief and experience are prior, and we come to state what we know from trial, trial and error, exploration of the world. Um, so we learn in relationships, and we learn in community, and we come to believe in relationships and community. And I like to think of this as a web of meaning. You know, classical epistemology was built on you know people trying to really drill down deep, like Descartes. What can I say? What can I say that I know for certain is true? Descartes starts, I think, therefore I am. Other people start with other things, but you want to get these. The classical model is you get these foundational building blocks, and then you make inferences and build up knowledge from those foundational building blocks. And I think that's a wrong way of looking at meaning and knowledge. I think knowledge is more like a web. It's like a spider's web. You know, and you're out there on this little web, and you stick out your feet in one direction. You see if it bears your weight, and if it does, maybe you go on like that. But if it doesn't bear your weight, you pull back, and you go in a different direction. And learning and believing and coming to know are more like that. So if the web of meaning is there for us, then it support, and it supports our weight our emotional weight, our aspirational weight, the weight of our desire to understand both in the laboratory and in relationships, um, then we come to believe. And this is, a, this is a, obviously a much harder thing to get conversations going with people. Um, I think getting to, tr but trying to get past the scientist-religious divide and make the point that we're all in this together and have some simple, powerful examples that you can use about important human decision-making that is totally outside the realm of science and saying, we're all in this together, suddenly you then create possibilities for dialogue and for testimony um, in, in the positive sense of that word that aren't there to begin with. So I just want to tell you a little bit about my web of meaning to, to, stop, to, to close this thing off. Um, one of the dangers in inviting somebody to 
talk like this, especially inviting an extrovert like myself, is that they might tell you what's really going on with them. <laughs> um, and uh, the past couple of years, for all kinds of reasons, have been very harrowing ones for me uh, at a personal level and have tested some of those webs of meaning. Um, one of the things that, you know, that I want to tell you just a little bit about here over the next five or ten minutes um, is that I had two very close friends, uh, men sort of ten to fifteen years older than me, uh, die within the past year, both of them of pancreatic cancer. So one of them was a colleague at Stanford, Paul Hensley, who um, was a professor of OBGYN who retired at age 63, took early retirement, to give over the rest of his life to kingdom work, as he called it. This is a man is one of the most authentic, some, one of the most deeply authentic Christians that I've ever known in my life. You know, as close to being a saint as anyone I've known in my life. A smart man, a worldly man, you know, a, a world-class MD, um, but a man of very simple and authentic faith before God. And Paul was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, uh, you know, he told us in a faculty, we have a little faculty Christian fellowship that meets irregularly at Stanford. Um, but he told us, he, he told lots of people over those last few months of his life, you know, people have asked him how this affects his faith. And he would just get this wry grin on his face and sort of tilt his head. And he'd say, well, you know, I gave my life to God a long, long time ago. I think this would be a really bad time to take it back. <laughs> um, the other guy is, was named Lewis Wilkins, and I actually met him through counseling sessions um, as my former wife and I were trying to work out relationship issues over a period of about or several years. And Lewis was a very valuable counselor to me, sort of spiritual director, counselor kind of guy. And Lewis was one of these West Texas guys, lifelong Texas, this, this Texas drawl. You know, I can still hear his voice in my head, but he was diagnosed with cancer. And I still, we would talk once every two weeks on the telephone, had this hour set up. And I remember the morning that Lewis told me that, um, that he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And, uh, you know, he told me he, at, the, at, the, at the beginning, you know, he told me what had, what had, what, what had happened and that he, you know, what the medical options were and the steps that he was going through and that he would be having surgery, hopefully, and we wouldn't be able to talk for a while, but he would let me know when he's ready to go again. Um, well, I never talked to him again after that. He had complications and um, went downhill pretty rapidly. But it was funny because he talked to me for 10 minutes about that, and he said, on to the next stage, uh, thinking about his own life, you know, because he had talked to me about stages, uh, and, and he said, on to the next stage. And then he said, so, what's going on with you, Bill? And for the next 40 minutes, we talked about me. And he was just as present there for me as he had ever been any time. He, um, he, he was, you know, he listened carefully to me. He was attentive. He was involved. He didn't, he didn't forget things. I mean, if I had just been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, this is about the last thing in the world I would have been doing. And if I'd been trying to do it, I wouldn't have been able to concentrate. But he was like the Lewis I'd always known. I, you know, I remember getting off the phone that day and thinking, that man has achieved a level of spiritual maturity that I'm a long way from. Um, so these guys were, were very important people in my life. Um, lost them both within six months of each other. Uh, you know, still feel that loss keenly to this day. 
but one of the one of the most one of the greatest testaments to Christian community, this web of meaning that I've ever seen, was that after Lewis was diagnosed, he and his wife started one of these blogs. Uh, there were these websites set out up there. This particular one is called Caring Bridge, where people, you know, there are just too many people out there to email and telephone, you know, who love a couple like this, who were so deeply enmeshed in their community the way Lewis and Judy were. So Judy started this blog, and she put updates on this blog from time to time. And, you know, I read this thing almost every day during, she would, you know, every second or third day she'd put, well, she, and I'm sure she was using it in part as a journal for herself that she'll go back and digest, you know, over the coming years, months and years. But I just want to read you some of the things that were published on that blog, just a few of them, because it's a testament to community to me that I, I you know, is just, just astounding to me. Um, there was an entry from, and all this just happened this year. <laughs> Wednesday, January 16th, 2008. Somebody says, uh, sending you love, prayers, and warm thoughts. So this is someone writing to Judy and Lewis. God's love and grace permeates your home with angels and elves who love you. A favorite Einstein quote. So here's somebody out there on this website quoting Einstein. Quote, there are two ways to live your life. One as though nothing is a miracle. The other as though everything is a miracle. Thank you both for sharing so much of yourselves and the miracle of life with all who love you. A grateful heart never forgets. Blessings, peace, and love. You know, so here's, here, here's a quote from Einstein, um, and I think, I think it's right. I think, you know, everything's a miracle. I think that all of our relationships in our lives are miracles. And I think, you know, the whole of life is a dialogue between ourselves and God. Here's one from a young woman who was, says, Hi, Mr. Wilkins. I don't post much on your guest book, but I do try to check in every few days to see how you are doing. It is odd to think that my memories of you are etched in my mind from somewhere around 1978, 30 years ago, when I used to spend the night with Alyssa so often. I can still picture you with thousands of books in your office. Actually, they were all over the whole house. You were the only dad, it seemed, that seemed interested in us. Most dads were probably trying to find peace and quiet away from our high-pitched constant giggles. You made time to ask me questions and always listened and laughed along. And then there were dinners at your house. I can still hear you and Tim getting into the details of the ancient Egyptian cultures. He was probably nine years old and full of information on this topic. Maybe it was those conversations that inspired my sixth grade term paper on pyramids. I did very well on that one, by the way. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know that those many nights at the Wilkins house are happy memories from my childhood. The Wilkins house was so different than the Burns household, and I love the contrast from my big, loud, busy house to your house full of books, cultural artifacts, and quiet music. It was nice that Alyssa and I could enjoy the best of both. I'm glad you've been feeling better lately. Please know that I think about you often and keep you in my prayers. Love, Jane. So, you know, here's a voice from Lewis's past talking about community, talking about that web of meaning uh, that ideally we share in the Christian church. Another person says, uh, this, is, this is actually, this was written by a prophet. I remember thinking, this is from somebody in Missouri, and I remember thinking, this person from Missouri is a prophet. Did you guys know there are prophets in Missouri? <laughs> there's, there's at least one prophet in Missouri. I was just blown away by how beautiful this thing, this journal entry was. And this guy's writing to Judy. Says this is the middle of the winter. So this is January the 18th, 2008. The wind chill is below zero, and over three inches of drifting white powder grace the ground here in Missouri. We have a new puppy that takes well to the cold and enjoys romps in the country snow, chasing imaginary rabbits. 
He especially admires attacking seed pods at the end of long stems. Nature must have known how puppies would love spreading the seeds for a new and distant spring. I read every day the journal of your life. I get misty and I reflect. Such testament, such witness deserves a daily response. Mind floats on the ether, bits of heart flying out in the dark. God's keen memory for your mercy and grace permeates every line you write. Judy, I see you driving through cloud banks right now, sunny bursts of clarity and then a gray, opaque confusion. Your steady hand on the very edges of meaning is miracle to me. Faith and devotion steer the back winding roads where the only choice is to go forward. Drive on, dear heart, it's a bus and we're all there. The seeds you scattered along all those years ago still grow. Love does not diminish as you give it away. Kathy and I think about you and Lou every day. That's how it goes with us for you. So there's community in action. There's webs of meaning in action. Um, after Lewis died, his daughter, um, his daughter posted the last web entry, and she said, um, "She said, let's let the last entry here be belong to Martin Luther King Jr." And she has a uh, quote here from Martin Luther King Jr. that I want to read. And I I hate reading this because I sound like you know a white university professor reading this thing. I've heard Martin Luther King, and he doesn't sound like me. You know, he starts out, well, I don't know what will happen now. And those of you who have heard King say is, know that he would say, well, I don't know what will happen now. Have you heard King? Have you heard tapes of him? You know, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would love to live a long life. This was, this was like, you know, within three months of him being assassinated. He says, um, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. So this to me is just amazing stuff. And it's, it's the kind of experience in community where you believe and you try and you take a step. And at the end of it, you come to know. Um, it's not knowing in the scientific sense. You know, it's not knowing in the sense of being able to publish paper, uh, but it's knowing in a very deep sense. And I think we all have those webs of meaning, and they're all authentic. And those things we can communicate. You know, if we can get past some of those early barriers about, oh, I'm a scientist, I don't believe in religion. You know, if we can establish that common identity with people that we're all looking for meaning, um, and then simply testify about the web of meaning that we've been able to find. You know, I think answering the hard questions in the secular academy um, becomes a much more doable proposition. And it's ultimately not about cognitive defense. It's not about defense of specific doctrines about the virgin birth or did Jesus really curse the fig tree, you know, and it crumbled. I mean, getting into biblical interpretation, if you can get somebody interested in the New Testament, and even reading the New Testament pieces of it and starting to ask those questions and experience it for them for themselves, for yourselves, then it's been a huge victory. 
Uh, but the, the biggest thing is just to try to establish the commonality and get over that artificial division and then, you know, be able to testify from your own experience about the web of meaning. So across the years, that's uh, about the best wisdom that I've been able to accumulate. But I'm sure that lots of you have wisdom to share as well. And many of you know um, better than I do how your personal experience has worked out, and I'd like to hear about it. So I talked for about an hour, and we have another hour or, you know, half an hour, however, however long people want to talk. So I'm happy to answer any questions you might have, if you have questions about any of the stuff I've said. But I'm also very, very interested in hearing your own, your own experiences. Yes?